Well, we have spent this whole month working through a, a sermon series with a conspicuous title. And I always sort of thought if anybody just dropped in and saw this title, they would think, what an aggressive bunch of people these are. The ruthless elimination of hurry. How, how ruthless are these people? But just to restate why we're doing this and where we have been, uh, these things that, that we believe are so central to what it means to be the people of God, Joy, love, peace, all growing in the soil of our lives. These things are incompatible with hurry. In fact, not only does hurry keep from us the kind of love, joy, peace, the values of the kingdom of God that that we desire so deeply, even when we don't know that's what we're desiring it. We just have this sense that there's something missing. Not only do they rob us of that, but they keep us from God himself by stealing our attention away. Think of the thousands of things that happen day by day, moment by moment, that will steal your attention. In fact, you remember the quote, of course you do, because we've been reiterating it every week. Corey Ten Boom said, if God can't make you sin, he will make you busy. If God can't make you sin, he will make you busy. And so there is this key idea we've been addressing, and it starts with diagnosing the condition that pathological busyness, pathological busyness and distraction and restlessness are major roadblocks today in our spiritual lives. And that busyness that most of us live with, not just occasionally, but it's our default setting, that chronic hurry that we assume is normal, is far from normal. In fact, it's, it's pathological. John Ortberg, uh, one of the great teachers in this area, has said, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith, it is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. Do any of you feel that? Settling for a mediocre version of it? We just skim our lives instead of actually living them. And it goes, it goes deeper than just tweaking a few things on our day-by-day itinerary. Hurry is not just a disordered schedule. Hurry is a disordered heart. And too often, this endemic situation, this hurry, is a sign of something else, something deeper. Remember the haunting words of Jesus? What good does it do for a person to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their own soul? In our rush to gain everything that's out there, I wonder what we're losing. Jesus offers an invitation and the invitation comes in the form of, of this delightful image. Jesus says in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I mean, how many of you hear words like that and think, yeah, that's for me. Jesus is speaking to me. I'm heavy, and I'm weary, and I'm burdened. He goes on, he says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden 
is light. I want you to hear that again, but I want you to hear it in, in a fresh rendering. Uh, Eugene Peterson did a translation of the Bible. It's, uh, it's not a translation going back to the original words, word by word, but it's if we were saying that today in a vernacular voice for modern ears, what might it sound like? So listen to how he phrased it. He says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I've heard so many of you using that expression over the past month. The unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. This invitation, Jesus' invitation, take up my yoke, travel through life with me at your side, learn from me how to shoulder the weight of life with ease. It is grounded, this invitation, in a series of practices. And the key idea is this, that if you want to experience what Jesus has promised, the life that he's describing, a life that he says is an abundant life, the life that is really life, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. It's not just a brain dump. We open you up and we pop in a bunch of facts about who Jesus was. No, this, this goes deeper. This affects every part of who we are. Because an easy life, that's not an option for anyone. We don't get to control that. But an easy yoke is. And so, in this little book that we've been reflecting on, and and really this book is grounded in Jesus, who we're always reflecting on, uh, Comer says that Jesus isn't offering us an escape. Instead, he offers us something far better. Equipment. He offers his apprentices a whole new way to bear the weight of humanity with ease, at his side, like those two oxen in a field, tied together shoulder to shoulder, with Jesus doing the heavy lifting at his pace. And so for the past four weeks, we've been looking at tools, practical tools, equipment for living a less hurried life. And you might remember some of them. In the first week, we looked at the, at the twin disciplines of silence and solitude, and Pastor Sheldon led us through a, a marvelous reflection on that. And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Sabbath, the intentional setting aside of a day for rest and worship and playfulness and delight and unhurried joy. When is the last time you can remember that you had 24 full hours just for worship and delight? Delight in God, delight in family, delight in the good earth that he has made. Last week we talked about simplicity, how to get rid of some of the things that that crowd in on our lives, that add complexity and steal away our attention from the things that we say matter most. And today, we're going to bring this series to a close and look at a, a final discipline. Now, clearly, there's lots more disciplines. There's just, we picked four. And the discipline today we're looking at is slowing. Slowing. Let me just start with 
with a truth, or at least I, I think it's a truth that you'll identify with. And here's the truism, that, that we achieve inner peace when our schedules are aligned with our values. Does that make sense? When our schedules are aligned with our values. You show me your day planner, your calendar, and, and I'll tell you what you stand for, and you'll do the same for me. Do our schedules reflect our values? John Ortberg, who we already mentioned, Richard Foster, both on the cutting edge of trying to get the church really to wrestle with these things deeply. They, labored this, or they labeled this emerging discipline as the practice of slowing. And here's how Ortberg defines it. He says it's cultivating patience by deliberately choosing to place ourselves in positions where we simply have to wait. How countercultural is that? <laughs> Instead of paying extra to get that cut into the front of the line pass, you intentionally put yourself in a position of having to wait. The basic idea behind the practice of slowing is this. If you slow down your body, if you slow down the rhythms of your day, it will have cascading effects, good effects, on the rest of your life. Remember this. We are embodied creatures. We're not just brains walking around on legs. I mean, we think that the mind is the, the portal, the gateway, and in a sense that it is. It comes in here and our brain gives direction to our bodies. But you know it also works in reverse. Our bodies give direction to our brains all the time. Our bodies tell us when you're out of gas, when it's time to stop, when it's time to eat. Never forget that, that God has made you not just a soul, and not just a mind, and not just a set of emotions, and not just a body, but all four things tightly meshed together. You're not just spirits, and you're not just animals, but you are the two woven together, integrated, complex, I mean, filled with, with energy. Uh, but I think we tend to pull them apart. Uh, that's why, for example, Westerners rarely practice the discipline of fasting anymore, which used to be such a consistent and regular part of, of following Jesus. Why? Because I think at some level we just can't simply fathom a practice that life change might come through our stomachs. Aren't we bigger than that? Our apprenticeship to Jesus is a whole person following. Mind, body, heart, soul, and when we can slow down one of those things, again, it has a cascading effect on the others. Maybe we can slow our souls down to a pace where we can, that wonderful invitation from Scripture, taste and see that the Lord is good. And enjoy the goodness of God, moment by moment. And enjoy the goodness of the people that God has made instead of seeing people as a, as a distraction or a task, and enjoy the world that God has made and the beauty that it's teeming with, all the life in the world that God has intended for good. So what we're going to do this morning, uh, we're going to look at a bunch of, I hope, fun, creative, flexible ideas about how you might begin to experiment with slowing down the overall pace of life. And maybe... Maybe some of you think, look, if I slow down anymore, I'm stopped. But, but for the most part, 
That's not the case. And we've been listening throughout the past four weeks and said, you know what, even in retirement, like I am as busy as I ever was. So we're going to look at a set of practices. Listen, this is not, these are not laws. These are not commandments. These are not sort of check boxes. You can pick and choose a little bit. Try something that feels fun or personal. You can roll your eyes at some of the other ones. Uh, maybe... Maybe as you start listening to these, they begin to sound, well, that's not particularly, I don't know, it doesn't sound very religious. It doesn't sound like a spiritual discipline. And on one level, maybe they aren't. And and maybe that's okay, and I'll tell you why. Uh, remember years ago, those rubber bracelets started to appear. And one of the one of the more popular ones just had an acronym on it, WWJD. Does anybody remember the... Yeah? Remember what it stood for? What would Jesus do? I mean, it was a good question. I mean, the idea is that you stop in the course of a day, you look down, and you, oh, yeah, it's a good question. What would Jesus do? Um, and as good as the question is, there's a nuance to it that maybe just doesn't quite lend itself as well as it might to the practice of these kind of disciplines. And here it is. We know about the life, the practices, the lifestyle of Jesus as they were grounded in his world, a first century world, not a city, not an urban setting, a a little seaside fishing village. Jesus didn't drive a car. He didn't field text messages. He didn't have to worry about late night runs to the grocery store or the pharmacy. What we're suggesting this morning is instead of asking, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do if he were living today? In my shoes, in in my setting. And so these are just a series of ideas, practices. Uh, If we were attempting to follow Jesus, well, living in the modern urban GTA, raising a family, clutching a smartphone, living where there's Wi-Fi everywhere. So anyway... Listen, if, if you're the kind of person who says, you know what I love most is, is when the pastor just really digs into a passage of Scripture and we go deeply and, and we come out richer. And I want to say, I, I love that too. I mean, if nobody else in the room loves it, I love that. If you love that, you're going to be a little disappointed. Uh, these practices are grounded in our wrestling with Jesus through Scripture. And we've done that all the way through the series. We'll continue to do that and we'll do it at the end of this message. But again, this is just some creative reflection on what this could look like. So I've got 15 ideas. Each one is going to take 17, no, like a minute or two, okay? (laughs) And then we are going to, uh, we're going to do something different at the end of the service today. So if you're worried that I started this early because I need an hour and a half, that's not it. 15 practices. There's actually 20 in the book. We did a little bit of editing for you because we're in a hurry. Yeah. (laughs) Let's start with something most of us do daily. Drive a car. Here's the first suggestion. Drive the speed limit. (laughs) Uh, Not below the speed limit, that's just annoying. But but get into the slow lane and just rock it with grandma and her Oldsmobile. Settle in. Just feel the wheel and the road and watch the scenery pass and use it as a chance to practice presence. What do we mean? The presence of God in that moment, the presence of the world, the life of your own soul. Come to a full stop at stop signs, not because it's the law, but because it's a reminder 
that that's how life works. We come to a full stop, and if we don't, well, our bodies bring us there inevitably when we hit a wall. So that's the first one. Drive the speed limit. Here's the second. Show up 10 minutes early for an appointment sans phone, without your phone. What could you do with 10 leisurely minutes at the dentist's office, for example? I mean, enjoy some of those coffee table magazines that have been there since the 90s. <laughs> Chat with another human being who's waiting beside you. Read a book. Here's an idea. What if you prayed? Some of you are already praying because it's the dentist's office, but what, what if you prayed? Add some margin to your life so that you don't arrive everywhere in that, that sense of frantic hurry. Here's a third idea. You're going to love this one. Get into the longest checkout line at the grocery store. Now, you're hating on me now, right? We're in an efficiency-obsessed culture. Why would we do that? Literally waste time on purpose. Well, here's, how, here's why you might want to do it. I, I, I do it occasionally. I'm no martyr. I'm learning with you in this. But it's a way to slow down life and deal with the sense of hurry in my soul. For a few minutes, say, I'm going to come off of the drug of speed. And I'm going to pray. And I'm going to take a little bit of an inventory of my emotions. How am I doing right now? And when I get to the cashier... This is the great part. When I get to the cashier, I'm in a position to express the love of God in some way to him or her. Maybe simply just by saying hello and asking a few questions about how their day is going and saying thank you, rather than paying for my items while I'm texting on my phone, listening to a podcast through my AirPods, all the while treating this poor clerk like there's some kind of ATM instead of a person, a soul. But here's the deeper motivation. When you learn to regularly deny yourself from getting what you want, whether from a practice as intense as fasting or as minor as picking a longer checkout line, what you're teaching yourself is to respond to situations where it doesn't go your way. Without anger and and frustration, you get acclimated to it. And you don't always have to get your way in order to be happy. That takes a while for us. So start small. Start on aisle three. Make sense? Here's the fourth one. This is going to be controversial. Maybe the younger you get, the more controversial it is, but I'm not sure that's the case. Turn your smartphone into a dumb phone or a dumber phone. There's no official checklist about how you might do this, but let me give you a few suggestions. Don't use your phone regularly for email. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Similarly, if this is a real struggle for you, and I know it is for some people, you remember 4,000, more than 4,000 touches a day, the average cell phone user. Similarly, if, you know, if, if social media is a challenge for you, transfer it to a desktop. Don't do it on your phone. Because your phone is always with you. It, it's like an alcoholic dragging along a bottle with them wherever they go. Transfer it to a desktop. Schedule times when you will check it during the day or ideally during the week. Delete those notifications, those things that pop up constantly. You're just peppered with them. Oh, so-and-so posted on Facebook. i got to go look. I need to see what they're having for lunch. You know, or 
every app has notifications and you just get buried in them. Delete every single app on your phone that you don't need or that doesn't make your life somehow easier. And finally, if you want to try something really creative, and I just read about this, so I'm not sure, but I thought it was intriguing. If you struggle with this a lot, set your phone into grayscale mode. Hear me out on this. This does something neurobiologically that that I'm probably not smart enough to explain, but it has to do with increasing dopamine addiction because everything about that display, that app, that screen is designed to feed an ongoing addiction. You can Google it if you want, but just not on your phone and not right now. Okay. Here's the fifth one. Parent your phone. Parent your phone. The same way you parented your kids. Put it to bed before you go to bed and let it sleep in. (laughs) Parent your phone. How about having your spouse or your Bible or your God be the last thing that you touch at night and the first thing that you reach for in the morning? In the same vein, here's a sixth idea. Keep your phone off until after you've had your morning quiet time. Because the stats here are they're ominous. 75% of us sleep right next to our phones. 90% of us check our phones immediately upon waking. Remember that adage that we, we used earlier on? Before your feet hit the floor, let your soul hit the heavens. I can't think of a worse way to start my day than scrolling through a bunch of texts from work or glancing through emails or social media or a news outbreak about this day's latest outrage, which could be something awful and traumatic, but more often than not lately, it's about what celebrity said something that ticked off some other celebrity. It's, it's a surefire recipe for, for angst and misery and not joy. Don't let your phone set the emotional equilibrium for your day. Don't let your news feed determine your view of the world that God has made. What I'm saying is let, let prayer be your emotional equilibrium. Let Scripture inform your worldview. Begin your day in God's presence. And again, none of this is meant to be legalistic. These aren't commands, but they're, they're kind of like guardrails to, to, to keep us in the lane and ensure that we don't sort of drive off one side or the other. And when we do that in the morning, sometimes we spend the whole day recovering from it. Here's a seventh idea. Set a time and a limit for email and social media. I said we get back to this. This isn't my suggestion. I, every, every self-help writer, every time management guru, every workplace efficiency expert, blogger, whatever, has something to say about this. Don't use your phone for email. Here's why. Because it's always with you. Which means you are always on. You're always tethered. You have a free moment in the elevator. You're bored in the middle of a meeting. You just answer some random emails throughout the course of the day. Instead, set a time to do it. I do emails, this is a for example, at eight in the morning. And I do them again at about four in the afternoon. But maybe that's too much for you. Maybe you do it twice a week. Maybe it's not enough. Maybe your job is managing email, and so you need to find a rhythm. But be intentional about it. For most people, this feels wildly unrealistic. I get it. But figure out what works for you. Experts recommend you don't check your email more than twice a day. 
And here's why. I mean, even when you do that and you take your inbox all the way down to zero, and that's a good practice, don't have it hanging over you, you know this is true. The more email you do, the more email you do. Right? It just, it, it breathes like rabbits in the sun. I mean, it's just, you can watch the counter on your inbox go up and you think, I'm never getting ahead of this. You ever had the experience of going away on vacation? You're thinking, I'm going to get back and there's going to be a thousand emails waiting for me. And it's not nearly as many as you thought. Why? Because shockingly, they worked it out without you. <laughs> and because you weren't always bouncing the messages back and forth, they weren't breeding and multiplying. Social media is the same thing. Set times for it. Be intentional about it. Otherwise, I mean, as a tool, it's great. But it's a black hole that you can fall into. Number eight, be careful with TV. Again, I'm no martyr. We have a TV, actually more than one. And they're, they're on probably more than they ought to be. But even more than social media, TV film, sports, they consume the lion's share of our so-called free time. And we who claim we don't have any free time, bear this in mind, the average American Canadian is watching TV about five hours a day, 35 hours a week. Now, it's a little lower for millennials, but that's because, you know, us millennials, we spend all our time on social media. We're just as addicted to entertainment, just a different form. When asked about the competition, the CEO of Netflix, a man named uh, Reed Hastings, they were asking about Amazon Prime and Disney Plus and all these other services. He just kind of shrugged and said, yeah, no, our biggest competitor is none of them. Our biggest competitor is sleep. <laughs> they are competing with sleep, trying to keep you awake, depriving you of that one thing your body absolutely needs. Remember what we give our attention to is often the person we become for good or for ill. Maybe you had grandparents that said to you, garbage in, garbage out. (laughs) Grandparents are smart. Listen to your grandparents. Every single thing that comes into our minds has the potential to affect what goes on in our souls. And if you fill your mind with unrealistic portrayals of beauty and romance and sex and violence and the quest for revenge, if you fill it with that kind of cynical sarcasm that pervades so much of our humor, if you fill it with a parade of opulent wealth or, or just banality. And if there's nothing else feeding you, what, what do you think that does to your soul? Number nine, single task. I don't know if that's a word or not. I'd like to coin that one, single task. Later in life, I think I've come to realize what I wish I'd known earlier. Multitasking is a myth. I mean, literally, it's a myth. Only God is omnipresent. I inhabit a body, a body that can really only do one thing at a time. Multitasking is just kind of sleight of hand, switching back and forth between a lot of things, doing different tasks, doing them all poorly instead of doing one thing well. I want to be fully present in the moment. I want to be fully present with God and with other people and with the world and with my soul. And that's more than enough to consume my attention. I can check the weather and the latest updates on the new Star Wars coming to Disney. I can check that later. How are we doing? People still awake? Give me a nod. Okay, there we are. Online, give me a nod. 
Number 10, walk slower. One of the the ways to slow down your overall pace of life is literally to slow down your body. Now, I'm not talking about exercise. If you're out there jogging or, or walking for... But the rest of the day, as you're moving around. I realized this summer we were on vacation, having a great time, Quebec City, and out uh, on, the, on the east coast of Canada. And I'm almost always walking about 10 paces ahead of my family. Um, now, partly, I, I married someone with shorter legs. But... <laughs> But there's something about moving through life at a more relaxed pace. As your body goes, so also your mind and your soul. Number 11, take a regular day alone for silence, for solitude. Sounds a little bit Sabbathy, doesn't it? Uh, and yes, I realize I'm an introvert and most people or lots of people aren't, but Uh, And yes, I realize I'm a pastor, and so my hours are a little maybe more flexible, and I get that. But I think it's wise for people of all different personality types, and I think this is far more doable than most of us realize. Number 12, take up journaling. I don't journal a lot. I journal a little bit, enough to keep me focused. I keep a moleskin on my desk because I think they're cool. so this one is probably a little bit for me. I don't know if it's for you, but journaling. Write, write down some key developments in your life. A dream that you had, or a word that you think might have been a word from God, or, or answered prayers, or a sense of direction that you feel is coming from the Holy Spirit. The slow, cathartic act of writing your life down. It has a grounding effect. It's like, it's like tethering the soul in the middle of the hurricane of speed in our world. Number 13, and these are important. If if there were nothing else you were going to jump at, I I hope you'll give these ones a chance. Experiment with mindfulness and meditation. Again, mindfulness, not a biblical word, not even my favorite word. Mindfulness is just silence and solitude reshaped for a secular society. And when I hear it being talked about in society, there's part of me that says, yay, that's fantastic. And there's part of me saying, hey, that sounds like prayer missing the very best part. I mean, you're, you're emptying yourself just for the sake of being empty instead of emptying yourself so that you can fill that part of you that is empty with God. Imagine yourself breathing in the Holy Spirit, breathing out the agitation of the day. You can turn your breathing into a prayer. And that's not some weird Eastern wisdom. That's, that's thoroughly grounded in Scripture. Imagine inhaling the fruit of the Spirit one at a time. Imagine breathing in love, breathing out the anger, or breathing in joy, and breathing out sadness and pain. You breathe in peace. And you exhale anxiety and uncertainty. Breathe in patience. And you breathe out the hurry of life. And if you want to go the next step deeper after mindfulness, meditation. Again, another ancient Christian word. An ancient practice that that somewhere along the line, I think, got co-opted by the New Age Renaissance. And now people are so afraid of it. Don't think namaste or om bowls. Think Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who meditates on the law of God day and night. 
if you meditate in the kind of Old Testament Jesus variety, you're not just emptying your mind, you're filling it with something, with Scripture, with truth, with the voice of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Tim Keller says. We, sadly, we just lost Tim last year, but uh, Tim, a, a, an incredible preacher and a leader of a, of a thriving church, multi-church campus in New York. Tim Keller says, Persons who meditate become people of substance, who have thought things out, and who have deep convictions, who can explain difficult concepts in simple language, and who have good reasons behind everything they do. Many people do not meditate. They skim everything, picking and choosing on impulse, having no thought out reason for their behavior, following whims. They lead shallow lives. Mindfulness and meditation. Number 14, if you can, take long vacations. Recent study out of Finland's University of Tampere found that, that happiness kind of peaks around day eight of vacation. Most of us are so rushed, so hurried, it takes those first few days just to get settled. And then it kind of levels off. So researchers recommend that when you take vacation, you take at least a week off at a time. And that you try and do that, if possible, at least once a quarter. You know, under the this is fascinating. Under the Torah, under the Old Testament law, Israel had three of these feast times set aside every year. Week-long Sabbath. Zero work allowed for an extended Sabbath. And they were bookended on either side by Saturday, which is already Sabbath. So you've got Saturday, the whole week, to the next Saturday, eight days. Ancient wisdom proved by modern science, as if we needed it. But the modern science, that is. Ancient wisdom, yes. Listen, I, I understand that for lots of people, this, this may not be an option. Especially for those who are, who are suffering under the weight of, of trying to live in a society that is prohibitively expensive and they just can't take the time or they feel like they can't. Or you're just starting out your career. But I guess my encouragement is simply this. Take as long a vacation as you can and do it as often as you can. As a staff, one of the things we have covenanted around here is forcing everyone to take their time. And surprisingly, for people who ought to know better, that's not easy for us. So usually by the end of the year, we're all going through your schedule and saying, you know, you didn't take enough time. You didn't take enough time. When are you going to take your time? Here's the last one. We'll start a little bit more light, but, or we'll end a little bit more light. Cook your own food. Cook your own food and eat in. Fast food is fast. It's not food. Real food takes time. And we're okay with that. It's important. So there you are. 15 ideas. Just ideas. They may not be for you. That's okay. Come up with your own list. But come up with a list and try some things. There is more to life than just an increase in speed. That abundant life Jesus talked about, the life that is truly life, it's right there for us to be enjoyed. There's a prayer that has been embedded in the Alcoholics Anonymous movement now since it first began. 
Many of you will know its opening lines. You don't have to be a member of AA. It's called the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. But it has this great phrase in it. What's the goal? That I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with Jesus forever and the next. I may be reasonably happy. Reasonably happy is more than enough. And it's entirely possible. You, re- you reorganize your life around a set of simple principles. Slow down. Simplify your life around the practices of Jesus and live from a center of abiding. And I save what I think is the best scripture for last. You heard it already as Andrew read it. The words of Jesus, abiding is the metaphor that I just keep coming back to again and again. Abide in me, Jesus said, and I in you. Just as the branch can't bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Abiding. Nicholas Herman, Parisian monk, uh, better known as Brother Andrew, called this a life of practicing the presence of God. Because it takes practice to do it, to live from that kind of attention and awareness, especially in this world. And so four practices, silence and solitude being the first, Sabbath, simplicity, slowing, all intended to move us towards abiding as a baseline. And to say it just one last time, all four of them are a means directed at an end. The end of silence and solitude is to come back to God and find our true selves. It's not just being quiet for quiet's sake. The goal isn't just Sabbath. It's restful, grateful lives of ease and appreciation and wonder and worship. The goal isn't simplicity on its own. It's It's the freedom to focus on what matters the most. And it isn't even just slowing down. It's slowing down so that we can be present with God and with people in the moment. It's practice. Maybe not perfection, but practice multiple times a day. And when you feel yourself slipping back into hurry, because that pull, that, that gravity is so overwhelming at times, maybe just say to yourself, slow down. Breathe. Come back to the moment. Receive the good gifts that God has for you. Accept the hard things as a way that that God can strengthen and nourish you. And in all things, abide. Remember the invitation of Jesus? Come to me. Find rest for your souls. I'm going to invite our worship team back to the stage. And as they're coming up, let me just offer up a prayer for us. God, our Father, we, we lead busy lives. There's no denying it. Sometimes we're addicted to the pace of life. There's no denying that as well. And there's something within many of us that wants to escape from us, but it's not easy. 
So we want to listen to you and learn from you. We want to invite you into the moment-by-moment experience of life. Slow us down, Lord. Recapture our attention. Focus our gaze increasingly on you and, and allow us to see the world that you have made with eyes that are christened and anointed by you. God, we invite you into the routines of our day. We invite you to, to be at work there, transforming, renewing, inspiring, uplifting. God, we want to live these moments in our lives faithfully present, abiding always in you. And God's people said together, Amen.